beautiful chorus to lead us into the message. Children are dismissed to junior church, so you all can make your way to junior church. We got a little crowd today, so y'all have fun, and we'll have fun too. We really will. Um, we're going to be going to Romans chapter 3, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles or your uh, smartphones or your tablets or whatever you have, or maybe you have copies of the sermon, which I put the scripture right there. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Uh, Romans is what I think the... The sixth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans, right before First and Second Corinthians. So I invite you to turn there. Um, Romans chapter 3. And we are going through a sermon series on the book of Romans. And so we've just kind of begun this series, and we've just uh, got to the point where we're in Romans chapter 3. And so my goal is between now and something like September or October, we're going to continue just walking through Romans. And we're going verse by verse or section by section teaching the book of Romans. And while we teach the book of Romans, we are also preaching the theme of each, of each section of Romans. So we're teaching and preaching the theme of the passage. It's called expository preaching, which means it's exposing, expository. Think of exposing, exposing the text. What is God teaching us in this passage of the Bible? What is God teaching us today in Romans chapter 3? And I give general applications at the end, but I want to always remember that maybe the Holy Spirit might have a different recommendation for you. The Holy Spirit might... Uh, give another specific application and we always want the word of god to do the work of god and oftentimes the holy spirit we call it illuminates illuminates something in a passage illuminates some type of spiritual awesome truth as we look at this so romans chapter three let's just get into here i want to introduce the passage here for a moment though uh, many years ago i was working as a mcdonald's manager i was a shift manager there while i went through college i did my I always say seven years of tribulation period there, and, and I still like McDonald's a lot. Anyways, and I was talking with somebody. I'm back in the office uh, counting drawers down, counting the money or something like that, or looking at the schedule. I don't know what I was doing. I'm talking to somebody, and we're talking about what, what ethnic group, what ethnicity had faced more than any other ethnic group? What ethnicity uh, faced more hardship, more genocide, more slavery than any other ethnic group? And the person I was talking with thought for sure the African Americans have faced more than anyone else. And I don't believe that. But, but before I say that, let me admit, I admit that it is true. The African Americans have faced unbearable crimes against them. The African Americans have faced, for sure, un, 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 unspeakable sins against them. They were enslaved in the American colonies starting in 1619 and going until 1865. They faced another 100 years of systemic racism. And, of course, the other issues since, because between 1865 and 1964, they continue to face systemic racism. Systemic means, by the way, that it's actually written in the law books. And we know until at least 1964, and some would say after that, it was systemic. The African Americans have faced many, 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 many uh, terrible, terrible crimes against them. I cannot imagine being taken across the Atlantic Ocean to be a slave. I cannot imagine what, it, what, what went on when the, with the slave trade. John Newton, many of you know the story of Amazing Grace. John Newton ran a slave trade ship. He was the captain of a slave trade ship. And then he became a Christian. 
And he was saved, and slowly God began to transform him. God began to metamorphosize him and make him more like Jesus. And many, many, many years later, John Newton wrote that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. And I know that he was probably thinking back to running the slave trade ship. He recognized how hurtful his sin was and how great God's grace on him was. Still, while acknowledging that, I do not think the African Americans faced more than any other ethnic group. I think the Jewish people faced the most. What advantage was there or is there in being Jewish? That is a question the Apostle Paul asks in Romans chapter 3. And in a moment, we're going to read some of Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to put it in context. Why is the Apostle Paul bringing up ethnicity here? Why is Paul talking specifically about advantages in being Jewish? But first, seriously, what advantage is there in being Jewish? Listen to this history of the Jewish people. And... This is several paragraphs. It comes out of a commentary. Um, I'm going to read it to you with some of my own thoughts. I apologize in advance for uh, reading so much right here, but it gives so much helpful history to the crimes, certainly, against the Jewish people. They were slaves in Egypt for some 400 years. Most of us know that. Before Moses, uh, before Moses, they were slaves for some 400 years. They eventually are freed and they're taken to the promised land. They eventually face a divided kingdom, a divided monarchy. After, after King David reigned over Israel and King David's son um, Solomon reigned over Israel, after Solomon died, the kingdom was divided. And they had a divided monarchy, a divided kingdom for a few hundred years. And then, they are, uh, and then after that, not, not long after they rebuilt their homeland, they were conquered. Um, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Not long after the divided kingdom, they're eventually conquered by Assyria. And then they're conquered Assyria around 721 B.C. And then eventually between 605 B.C. and 586 B.C., they're conquered by Babylon. And they're actually taken to Babylon in three waves. And they're ripped from their homeland once again. They are soon sent back to the promised land through uh, Cyrus of Persia. But not long after they rebuilt their homeland, they were conquered by Greece. And the despotic Antiochus Epiphanes reveled in desecrating their temple, corrupting their sacrifices, and slaughtering their priests. Under Roman rule, they fared no better. Tens of thousands of Jewish rebels were publicly crucified, and under Herod the Great, scores of male Jewish babies were slaughtered because of his insane jealousy of the Christ child. And then, lest we think we are done, in the year A.D. 70, so this is the year A.D. 70, about, about 35 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, in the year A.D. 70, the Roman general Titus Vespasian carried out Caesar's order to utterly destroy Jerusalem its temple, and most of its citizens. According to Josephus, Josephus was a Jewish historian of the first century in general. According to Josephus, over a million Jews of all ages were mercilessly butchered. And some 100,000 of those who survived were sold into slavery or sent to Rome to die in the gladiator games. Two years previously, 
that'd be about 68 AD, Gentiles in Caesarea, Caesarea had killed 20,000 Jews and sold many more into slavery. During that same period of time, the inhabitants of Damascus cut the throats of 10,000 Jews in a single day. In AD 115, the Jews of Cyrene, Egypt, Cyprus, Cyprus, and Mesopotamia rebelled against Rome. When they failed, Emperor Hadrian destroyed 985 towns in Palestine and killed at least 600,000 Jewish men. Thousands more perished from starvation and disease. So many Jews were sold into slavery that the price of an able-bodied male slave dropped to that of a horse. The price of a Jewish male slave was cheaper than the price of a horse. I guess I didn't tell you that this is for mature audiences only. In the year 380, so this is 380, you know, just over 300 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Emperor Theodosius I formulated a legal code that declared Jews to be an inferior race of human beings, a demonic idea that strongly permeated most of Europe for over a thousand years and that even persists in many parts of the world in our own day. For some two centuries after that, the Jews were oppressed by the Byzantine branch of the divided Roman Empire. Emperor Heraclitus banished them from Jerusalem in 628 and later tried to exterminate them. Leo the Assyrian gave them the choice of converting to Christianity or of being banished from the realm. When the first crusade was launched in 1096, 1096 AD, to recapture the Holy Land from the Ottoman Turks, the crusaders slaughtered countless thousands of Jews on their way to Palestine, brutally trampling many to death under their horses' hoofs. That carnage, of course, was committed in the name of Christianity. In 1254, so now we're in the middle of the dark ages. In 1254, King Leo IX banished all Jews from France. When many, when many later returned to that country, Philip the Fair, Philip the Fair expelled 100,000 of them again in 1306. I guess he wasn't fair. In 1492, the Jews were expelled from Spain even as Columbus began his first voyage across the Atlantic, and four years later they were expelled from Portugal as well. Soon, most of Western Europe was closed to them, except for a few areas in northern Italy, Germany, and Poland. Although the French Revolution emancipated many Jews, vicious anti-Semitism continued to dominate most of Europe and parts of Russia. Thousands of Jews were massacred in the Ukraine in 1818. In 1894... In 1894, because of growing anti-Semitism in the French army, a Jewish officer named Dreyfus was falsely accused of treason, and that charge was used as an excuse to purge the military of all Jews of high rank. When a number of influential Jews began to dream of reestablishing a homeland in Palestine, the Zionist movement was born. Its first Congress being convened in Basel, Switzerland in 1897, the Zionist movement. By 1914, some 90,000 Jews had settled in Palestine. In the unparalleled Nazi Holocaust of the early 1940s, at least 6 million Jews were exterminated. This time for racial rather than religious reasons. And of course, as we know, in 1948... 
the people came together and gave them back their homeland of Israel. Amazing, amazing, amazing prophecy fulfilled. But lest we forget that that actually began in 1897 with the Zionist movement. But when we look at this, we have to ask, what advantages were there or are there in being Jewish? And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to answer in this passage. Christianity is not about ethnicity. Christianity crosses ethnic borders, you know, and crosses regions. It's not about ethnicity. But the Apostle Paul is going to talk about that subject today. And so my theme today, or what I see as a theme of the text is, God's righteousness is upheld. God is righteous as a judge. Even while we are a sinner, God is righteous as a judge. Always remember that. God is a righteous judge. God is a just judge. How many of us yearn for righteous judgment? For a just judgment? I mean, we know in our society and in our world today, many times there is not righteous judgment. Many times there there are not just judges. But God is a righteous judge, even if we are all in sin, living in sin, living for sin, living as sinners. God is a righteous judge. Here's my application in a simple statement. Remember, Jesus is the righteous judge. Remember, Jesus is the righteous judge. So I've outlined this sermon based off the text, based off of Romans 3, 1 through 8. I've outlined the sermon. And in the verses 1 through 2, we see the question asked and answered, what advantages are there in being of a Jew or being circumcised? Circumcision was a, obviously a big part of being a Jewish person. What advantages are there? So let's read verses 1 through 2. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul asks, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What advantages has there? What advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? And Paul answers, much in every way. We could almost put an exclamation point at the end of that little phrase. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul answers questions. The Apostle Paul is using a rhetorical device called a diatribe. Everybody say that. Let's say diatribe. diatribe. Just making sure everybody's awake. He's using a rhetorical device. You passed the test, by the way. You are all awake. The rhetorical device called a diatribe means that he is having an imaginary conversation with the readers, with the listeners. He is having an imaginary conversation with them. And he's asking questions and answering them. He is thinking of the readers of this letter as asking certain questions. And in Romans 3, verses 1 through 8, he asks three questions and answers them. And then in verses 9 through about 20, which we'll look at next week, he continues in this question and answer method of communicating. Paul asks the question, Now, we need to put this in context. Context is critical when interpreting any work of literature. But this is not just a work of literature. This is God's word. This is the Bible. And context matters. Let's put this in context. Remember, the previous chapter was pretty much saying that the Jews are not excused. 
In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul opens the, 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 the letter of Romans and he gives this vice list, this list of sins, which were prevalent in the Gentiles of their day. He mainly addresses the Gentiles in chapter 1. And then in Romans chapter 2, which we talked about for two weeks, in Romans chapter 2, he turns to the Jewish people and he says, you're not excused. You're not excused. This is how I imagine it. I have two kids, nine and seven. And I know you all think they're perfect. They're really not. We just want them to be perfect in front of you. And, and if I am disciplining one of them, I, I grew up with two brothers, and I'm a middle child, so I have personal experience with this. When you're being disciplined and you have your siblings, or say your siblings are being disciplined, many times we are thinking, my siblings are being disciplined, but I'm glad it's not me. I'm okay. Look, see, I told you you were going to get in trouble for that, right? And then dad or mom looks at you and says, uh-uh, you're not excused. Don't walk away. We'll get to you in a minute. And that's kind of what the apostle Paul is doing right here. Chapter one, he's going towards the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. That's what it means. And then chapter two, the, Gen the, the Jewish people are thinking, we're good. Yeah, we're good. We're children of Abraham. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. We're okay. And the apostle Paul turns at them and says, uh-uh. Don't think that you are saved. Don't think that you have eternal life just because you go back to Abraham or just because you're circumcised. Don't think that you're okay just because of your ancestors. No. You need the gospel as well. <clears throat> you need a savior as well. You need Jesus' death and resurrection as well. So the apostle Paul addresses the Jews during that time. And so he asks the question here in verse 1. And he's using just a logical question and answer, answer method to talk to them. So in verse 2, he responds. You know, again, let me just emphasize more. Why is he saying what advantage is there in being Jewish? It's because he had just addressed them in the whole chapter of chapter 2. So they are thinking, he's anticipating that they are asking, well, what's it matter then? I might as well be a Gentile. What's it matter? And so now he's going to answer that question. He says the Jewish people were entrusted with the oracles of God. We don't use that word oracles a lot, right? Unless we're talking about the Hobbit or, or Chronicles of Narnia or something, some cool literature like that. He says the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? It's the law. The Jewish people were entrusted with what they would call the law of Moses and the prophets, with which the Jews were entrusted with, with what we would call the Old Testament. They were entrusted with the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were entrusted with Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezra, Nehemiah, the Psalms, the prophets. They were entrusted with God's word. The Jewish people were privileged. The Lord communicated to them and the Lord even called them out. The Lord blessed them. To bless the nations. You realize that? The Lord blessed the Jewish people in order to be a blessing to the nations. Now, they are ultimately a blessing to the nations through the Messiah, through Jesus. But even in the Old Testament, they were called to reach other people with the hope of the Messiah that was going to come through Judaism. That's Rahab. She wasn't Jewish, right? She was self-employed. You know, and she heard about God. She was a prostitute. She heard about God and she hid the spies and rescued the Israelites and became part of the ancestry of the Messiah of Jesus. Later on, Jonah, the racist prophet, God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent. 
And Jonah didn't want to, so God appointed a great fish. It doesn't say whale, it says a great fish, to swallow him up, eventually spit him out on the beach. And the reluctant prophet went to Nineveh. And they had a major, major, major repentance, a major revival, bigger than any in history. Close to a million people repented. The Jewish people were called to bless the nations. The Jewish people were entrusted with God's word. The Greek word for oracles of God is, is translated as logion, or that's the literal word logion. And it's a diminutive form of the common New Testament word logos, logos, which is translated as word. It is, it's a powerful word. It's used in 2 Timothy 4. In 2 Timothy 4, the apostle Paul is about to die, and, and he gives his dying words to his young, young pastor, Timothy, and he says, preach the word. And what that really is, is preach logion, preach logos, preach the oracles of God. The Jewish people were entrusted with the oracles of God. And here's an application for us. We must never forget the privilege of certain positions the Lord places us in. The Jewish people are anticipating, or Paul's anticipating them asking Paul, well, what's the advantage of being Jew? And he says, you are entrusted with the oracles of God. And you know what? Never forget where God places you. If you were raised or are raised in a Christian family, praise God. What a blessing. God has placed you in an amazing spot. If your parents or grandparents took you to church or prayed with you or did Bible studies with you, even if your parents didn't, praise God. Don't forget the blessings that God has given you. And if you are parents or grandparents, and maybe your children, your adult kids don't go to church anymore, never forget the high privilege that God has for you to hopefully impact still your adult children, but especially your grandchildren as well with the gospel. I'll never forget, um, I was part of a men's breakfast. We have men's breakfast this coming Saturday at 9 a.m., by the way, here. All men are welcome to come, breakfast and Bible study. We had a men's breakfast at my church when I was served in Alliance, and, and we did it. We had this men's breakfast with two other churches. One of them was a, was a predominantly African-American church, and when, when, the, when we hosted at my church, the African-American church brought the speaker. And there was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful African-American man gave just an awesome message. He was challenged years before that to lead a Bible study with his grandkids. He had grandsons. So he called them up and set it up. He said, if you come to Bible study with me, I'll provide donuts. Kids love donuts, right? So do adults. I, have diet, I, 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 I eat diet donuts. There's a hole in the middle of them, so they're, they're diet donuts. So he provided donuts for those grandsons, and he did a Bible study with them from the time they were like six, seven, eight years old until they were teenagers and maybe even after that. What an awesome blessing. Never forget the blessings God gives you. Even right now in the United States of America, do you realize how many blessings we have? To much is given, much is required. The Bible is illegal. In so many countries around the world, they died to get the Bible to North Korea, to Chinese people in China, to other countries. It's illegal. I was listening to, I think Craig shared the clip with me. I was listening to uh, a video of a man speaking about his ministry with Chinese Christians, Chinese churches. And he says, what happens, you know, the church is mainly underground there because they have government oversight. What happens if we're caught? And the Chinese Christians said, well, we'll go to jail and you'll get deported. And they said it just kind of casually. He's like, wow. Many of them had served for three to four years in prison for having Bible studies, illegal Bible studies. And while they were in prison, 
they memorize, they don't have the Bible in prison, so they memorize the Bible beforehand so that they have it with them in their head in prison. And this man's speaking, thinking, wow. And most of us in America, we just kind of sit it on our shelves. Never forget the amazing privileges God gives us when we have the oracles of God and we have God's word. Let's look at verses 3 through 4. Still Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. And in verses 3 through 4, Paul anticipates the question, will Israel's unfaithfulness nullify God's promises? A lot of Israel was unfaithful. And he's going to ask the question, will the unfaithfulness, the lack of faithfulness of Israel, nullify God's promises? Look at verses 3 through 4. This is what it says. What if... What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, and there's an exclamation point there. By no means, let God be true, though every one were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The question is posed in verse 3. Remember in the previous chapter, Paul talked about the unbelief of some. A lot of Paul's people, because Paul himself was Jewish, a lot of the Jewish people were unfaithful to the law. A lot of them rejected the Messiah. They were unfaithful to the Messiah. Later on in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul will say, I wish that I myself could be a curse for the sake of my people. Paul wanted to reach the Jewish people with the gospel, but they were unfaithful. Paul talked about the Jewish people that were Jews outwardly only. And Paul answers the question, God is true no matter what. No matter what, God is true. Paul strongly, strongly rejects their their thinking. Paul is strongly rejecting any thinking that if some people are unfaithful, it's going to nullify the faithfulness of God. John MacArthur shares, if all mankind, if all mankind were to agree that God had been unfaithful to his promises... It would only prove that all humans are liars and God is true. Right? If all mankind thought God's not faithful, it only proves that mankind are liars and God is still faithful. Paul answers this and he quotes Psalm 51.4. If you ever, you know, if you ever don't think the scriptures are that important, remember that a lot of the New Testament is the apostles quoting the Old Testament. Like 75% of the book of Acts is Old Testament quotations. So Paul's quoting the Old Testament right here. He quotes verse 4 of Psalm 51. He quotes verse 4 of Psalm, 50, uh, Psalm 51 that, that, that says that you, that's God, may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And that is after King David has been caught in his sin with Bathsheba. And David is repenting in Psalm 51, and, and 51 verse 4. And, 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 and David is pretty much saying that God is justified. God is the just, the righteous judge. God is justified when he judges. And that is most critical to remember right now. God is a just judge. Our sin is always first against God, first against God. So let's look at verses 5 through 8. Let's keep moving on through this passage. If our unrighteousness brings about God's righteousness... Isn't, it, isn't he unfair to punish us? That's what they're going to ask next. They're going to ask next, if our unrighteousness, if our badness brings about God's righteousness, isn't God unfair to punish us? Let's read these verses. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? 
Now he puts a parenthetical here. Don't miss it. He says, I speak in a human way. And then he says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God is, if, but if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Basically, people were slanderously saying that the apostle Paul is saying, okay, then just do evil so good may come. Just, just sin because you're saved by grace. Just go ahead and sin more so grace may abound. And Paul's going to answer that more in Romans chapter, um, in Romans chapter 6. But for now, he just kind of says, that's a slanderous charge. They deserve their condemnation. Paul is considering a false implication here. He is still using that literary device called a diatribe. The ESV study Bible says this. The ESV study Bible says, Paul does not provide a full answer to the objection here. We will see the full answer in Romans chapters 9 through 11. Paul shows that the Jewish objector's position is untenable. Don't miss that. The Jewish objector's position is untenable. For then God could not judge the world either. And no evil behavior could be punished. If God is not right to judge and fair to judge, then there is no judgment. It's not tenable. The question is important. And Paul will come back to a similar idea in Romans 9. Remember that at the end of verse 5, Paul says that he is speaking in human terms. And this is a parenthetical apology for blasphemous thoughts of God as unjust. He comes down to their level. He speaks in human terms in order to answer their objections. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul will say that the law, that's the Old Testament, shows that we are sinners. So in verses 6 through 8, Paul gives the reply. In verse 6, Paul says that he, that's God, has to judge the world. God has to judge the world. And Paul uses, this is really cool, a reductio ad absurdum argument. I just like saying that phrase. Paul uses a reductio ad absurdum type of argument. This means that he reduces the argument to the absurd. It's absurd to say that God can't judge, right? It's absurd. Of course God can judge. God is righteous and holy and just and perfect. Of course God is a righteous judge. It's absurd to think that God cannot judge. Paul strongly rejects this thinking. Paul says that if you follow... Follow the logical conclusions of that thinking. If you follow that kind of thinking, you might as well think the more you sin, the better. And that's why Paul apologizes for this thinking in human terms. Paul has been falsely accused of teaching this very thing. That is, do evil that good may result. Paul strongly rejects this thinking. And you can see it in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 2 again. So in verses 7 through 8... Paul continues to use this rhetorical question, trying to get them to think logically. Paul says, those who say such things deserve to be condemned. They deserve condemned for the things that they say that Paul says. They are misrepresenting him. They are slanderously misrepresenting him. By the way, whenever we think that way, we are forgetting the holiness of God and the great links Jesus went to save us from our sins. I want to make some applications now. These are all applications. These are somewhat general and somewhat specific. If, you know, the Holy Spirit may apply this differently for you. We must understand that 
There were advantages to ethnic Israel. And then the Messiah, our Savior, came through Israel. The Messiah, our Savior, came through Israel. They had the oracles of God. It seems to me that there's still a place for future Israel in the, um, in the new heaven and new earth. Number two, we must understand that there is a purpose for Israel based on Romans 11 and other passages as well. Number three, we must understand that God is faithful. Verses three through four, God is faithful. Even if we are all liars, no matter what, God is faithful. We must understand that God is true. Realize that God is true. Don't we yearn for, for truth? Aren't we eager for truth? I mean, how many news stations do we have right now? All sometimes saying different things. How much, how much can we hear online or in the media? Don't we yearn for absolute truth? We have that with the word of God. We have that with the gospel. And Jesus himself embodies truth. We must worship the Lord as a faithful one. The Lord is faithful no matter what. We need to respond in worship. We must surrender before him. We need to surrender before the Lord. We must understand that Jesus, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Jesus. We must trust Jesus for salvation. Have you trusted Jesus for your salvation? Have you confessed that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Have you believed in Jesus as the one and only Savior? Have you trusted in Him for your eternal life? Are you committed to Him? Many times we believe in Jesus. We believe He died on the cross for our sins and rose again. But we are not really committed to Him. Jesus calls us to die to self and live to Him. We must do that. We must trust Jesus for salvation. We must trust Jesus for our day-to-day life. When all the reports in the news say something different, and we do not know who to trust, we must know that Jesus is truth. When the medical advice changes, and it seems to, right? We must know that Jesus is the truth. When government leaders, when government leaders are not trustworthy, we must know that Jesus is truth. When a supervisor at your work wants you to mess with the numbers, report inaccurate numbers, lie about something, falsify a report, we must know that Jesus is the truth and he wants us to follow truth. Jesus is the truth, and he is the way to salvation. We can trust him. Jesus is the righteous judge. We will not be, we will not be falsely accused or misrepresented in front of King Jesus. In front of King Jesus, we have a righteous judge. We have a just judge. We're going to have a perfect, awesome judgment. And we can be saved forever through Jesus. We must never sin that grace may abound. We must seek to grow and serve the Lord Jesus. 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Seek to grow in him. Seek to serve him. Seek to love him. He is our just judge. He is our righteous judge. He is truth. And we can see right here that the Apostle Paul begins to make the argument that God is a just judge. Further, that even if we are all liars, it just shows it that we are liars and God is a righteous judge. And don't we yearn for that? Don't we desire a righteous judge? And have you surrendered to him? Are you seeking Jesus? I'm going to lead us in prayer here in just a moment. But before we go to prayer, can I ask that everybody bows their head and closes their eyes?
Let's go in a state of prayer. Let's go into a contemplative state, a meditative state. And I want to ask you, have you surrendered to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you committed to him? And I'm not talking just about a one-time prayer of salvation. That too, yes. But is he your Lord and Savior? Are you committed to him? The Bible uses four verbs. Those are action words to describe our commitment to Christ. I just said them a minute ago. Confess, believe, trust, commit. We're called to confess we are a sinner in need of a Savior. We are called to believe in Jesus as the one and only Savior. We need to believe, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Have you believed that? John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Have you believed that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? And then those two other action words, commit and trust. Have you committed to Jesus as Lord and Savior? Are you trusting in him as your Lord and Savior? Confess you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Believe in Jesus as your one and only Savior. Trust in him and commit to him. Some of you might have believed in Jesus years ago, decades ago, but you're not living for him. Today's the day to recommit your life to Christ. Today's the day to surrender anew. Some of you have always believed in Jesus, but never trusted and committed to him. Trust and commit to him today. Some of you have never confessed, believed, trusted, and committed. If that's you, if you need to commit to Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and I invite you to say this prayer with me. You're not saved by the prayer. You're saved by what's in your heart. But don't wait till tomorrow. You're never promised tomorrow. If, if, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, I committed to Jesus years ago, but I'm not living for him. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. Rededicate your life to him right now. Say the same exact prayer with me. So if you need to rededicate your life to him or you need to commit to him for the first time, say this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I confess I've sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I am trusting in you as Lord and Savior. Today, I'm committing my life to you. Please, Lord, come into my life and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer, please share it with someone today. If you have questions about God or the spiritual life, talk to me. I'd love to help you. You know, angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. God wants a relationship with all of us. He desires a relationship with us. And that's why he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and rise again. And Jesus gives us eternal life, but he also gives us a fuller life, complete life, abundant life. Too often we only focus on the eternal life, which is powerful and awesome, of course. But when you commit your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we have abundant life with him. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. That means that we are connected to Jesus. So if you have questions, I would love to answer your questions and talk to you about a relationship with Jesus. If you're a Christian but you have some doubts, talk to me. Never be afraid. I would love to talk to you. I would love to help answer your questions. So at this point, I'm going to invite Steve and the worship team to come up for the closing song. The altars are always opened. If the Lord has laid anything on your heart and you just want to come forward and pray, you can come forward and kneel at these altars. You could also just obviously sit and pray where you're seated as well. Great. Stand with us.